Hello and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place where we share creative and inspiring learning in our schools. Season 4, episode 44. Hello and welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast with me, Mark Taylor. Um, today I'm joined by Brian Green, who's the CEO and founder of GigaJam.com. Um, and he's somebody that I spoke to um, at the BET show um, earlier back in January, which is um, when you would remember from my season two, we went around and did lots of stuff based on tech. But this particularly was really interesting to me because obviously it's music related as well as the tech. And so having spoken to Brian, I said, um, I definitely need to get him on when we start doing our music season, which is where we are now here in season four. So um, thanks for being on the show, Brian. I'm really glad we're going to get a chance to chat now and really dive into what um, Giga Jam is all about. So um, welcome. And um, yeah, can you just give us a, a bit of history about yourself and, and how Giga Jam was formed and, and sort of an idea of what Giga Jam is? Yes, of course. Thanks, Mark. And, and thanks for inviting us on the show. I really appreciate that. Um, so uh, my background is, um, is one of a, a professional uh, drummer, um, dare I say musician. Um, and um, prior to that, <clears throat> excuse me, I, um, I worked for Barclays Bank for 10 years for my sins. Um, and then decided that actually I'd, I'd rather uh, do something that I had a, a massive passion for. So I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to become a professional player. Uh, I wouldn't go as far as to say uh, that I was a session player, although I did do uh, sessions um, in the early days. Uh, so um, sort of fairly, fairly notable were, were sort of Generation Game and Record Breakers uh, and a few other TV things that I was very fortunate to play on. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed but most of my work was um, commercial work so that would be uh, shows uh, pantomimes summer seasons tours uh, playing with a few bands and bits and pieces like that so I was very fortunate to have a a quite varied uh, professional career as I started out Uh, as I got a bit older um, touring uh, became less appealing so um, I wanted to uh, work more from home so I sort of reinvented myself and I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to become a, a drum teacher at Drum Tech in London, which is now part of the, uh, um, the BIM group. Uh, so it's moved on considerably. At that time, uh, it was developing into um, higher education for further education. And I ended up as the academic head there for a while, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And um, to some extent, I actually began to realize that, that, that teaching um, and coaching um, was a, a really uh, a, a sort of really enjoyable um, skill and it, it touched on other parts of, of, of um, my skill base that I hadn't realized existed so I, I thoroughly enjoyed that um, and uh, I was fortunate enough to actually become a university lecturer uh, for Thames Valley University at the time as was now University of West London um, which which took me in a whole new uh, direction so I had this I think people now are very used to the idea of having a portfolio career, but at that time you tended to do one or the other. Um, so I was playing as a, a professional musician and university lecturer. And then I started to say, well, look, we've got a problem here that we had people coming into drum tech um, who really wanted to be professional players. But at that time, which was sort of mid nineties, um, the formal education 
of musicians was really done um, by the conservatoires and Royal Academy of Music and the classical grades. So rock and pop music at that time um, was not terribly well taught, certainly not very well structured. So somewhere like drum tech was a bit of a godsend, but even that was quite ad hoc. Um, and students were coming through on the possibility of going into higher education and getting a degree in performing uh, performing arts. And actually, uh, the structures really, really weren't there. Uh, and the ability level um, was really quite patchy. So you had very talented musicians, but they weren't trained for all the necessary disciplines to become professional musicians. So I was very fortunate to be at that moment, that changeover where that whole education in rock and pop started to become more professional. Um, rock school started to come through, et cetera, et cetera. And to some extent, the rest is history. So rock and pop now is is really well taught across the board. Um, but there was a problem in that there was a scale issue. So there were lots of people who were coming to the university who just didn't have the skills. And of course, we know, we know that's still the case uh, to a large extent because there is a a huge amount of demand for music lessons, uh, but not the number of teachers um, and not the uh, amount of money available to be able to fund people to have lessons to enable them to develop their, their skills, or, or even in the first instance, have the opportunity to even see that they have a chance of, of learning to play an instrument um, at a high level. So that's where Giga Jam came from, where I looked at the scale issue and said, look, what we need to do is take quality education. Um, we need to now make it available to everybody, not just in these centres of excellence uh, in London at the time, and, and uh, Guildford was coming through there, the ACM, but actually to look at how the internet can reach more people, more scalably and more affordably. Um, so, you know, a, a drum tech course at that time would have been three and a half, four thousand pounds. So it's a considerable, I know that sounds like, peanuts now uh, when they're, it's £10,000 a year but in, in those days it was uh, it was certainly for the elite so um, that's very much where Giga Jam was born and so it, it sounds really as if um, you know it, it's, it's that sort of say it's guitar bass keyboards drums that that that's kind of the basis of it which of course children especially in schools are kind of that's their sort of their immediate understanding it's what they hear the most of probably you would say these days in school as well um so from a practical standpoint then um having set kicker jam up how, how does it work within a within a school setup or how, how does it work as, a, as an online organization yeah so there's two sides to it and i think um focusing on the educational side if i may um it's it's very much about um using uh, the internet into the classroom in support of the teacher uh, its delivery to provide what what is in in england it's not the case in scotland for instance but under the english curriculum and, and many curriculums that we see abroad is that actually learning to play a musical instrument is not part of the dna really of many uh, curriculums in music and hasn't been stressed certainly by the national curriculum you will get teachers who will want to do that as a natural course but actually most learning of a musical instrument takes place outside of the music classroom in the surrounding rooms and is often undertaken in, uh, with the support of the music services and so what we wanted to do was was to provide classroom 
teachers with more opportunities to bring instrumental learning into the classroom as part of the curriculum to support their students to become more musically literate and more musically skilled to be able to engage fully in the national curriculum, which is very much about music making, it's very much about performing, it's about listening to others, um, etc. I don't need to tell you <laughs> yeah. what's in the curriculum, but th those things are difficult to do if you can't articulate yourself as a musician. Not impossible, but, but hard to do. Uh, and I know there are great arguments about music as an academic subject, etc., etc. But I think most people would, would, would expect when their child goes to a secondary school that their child would have an opportunity to learn to play a musical instrument, for instance. Um, so it, how does it actually work is, is, is simply is there is a kind of replication or simulation of the one-to-one -one concept that you would have in a, uh, as a student going out of the classroom in that the computer has the lessons all effectively recorded for the, for the uh, individual students, guitar, bass, keyboards and drums. A classroom teacher then facilitates that learning so that students can have a one-to-one -one experience with the computer, but supported by the classroom teacher. So, you know, for instance, if you're learning to play the keyboard, you'll have your lessons online. The whole course is laid out in front of you. You go from exercise to exercise, learning both the theory and the practical. You record your performances into the computer. There's a little bit of software there that gives you immediate feedback as to how you're doing so that the student can start to make decisions. Oh, how well did I do? You know, what do I need to do better? Uh, and then they can repeat that process as much as they like within an exercise and then over the over the whole course, building up their portfolio and building up their skills over time and actually even uh, uh, gaining grades as a result. But the teacher actually then has a, a different role. It's a little bit <clears throat> like musical futures. Um, in that, the teacher becomes much more of a facilitator of the learning rather than the guider of the learning. Um, it is quite interesting that I actually read Lucy Green's book um, uh, at the same, you know, at about the same time that the Musical Futures guys were reading Lucy Green's book, and I came up with Giga Jam, and they came up with Musical Futures. <laughs> um, so, sort of a different sort of response to that uh, identification of, of of how young people learn music. Um, and mine was very much about the the, the difficulties that that children, students, young people, and, and adults, in fact, we have quite a lot of older people who learn the gig jam, but actually that ability to learn on your own, but being very, very supported with the continual and formative assessment to enable you to see whether you're making progress. Um, so beyond the individual interaction that takes place, um, I, I'm always at pains to say, it does look like a child is operating in a vacuum, but you, you know what it's like in a busy classroom. You've got conversation that takes place between the teacher and the students, the students and the student they're sitting next to. You have this peer-to-peer -peer learning going on. I, often I see a student saying, hang on a minute, you haven't played that power chord correctly because you've played all six strings instead of just the bottom two strings. And then a child as a result of their student's intervention has actually improved their score. So, you know, I, it's not about the technology, it's about how the technology enhances learning so it's very much about uh, technology enhanced learning rather than technology replacing a traditional form of, of um, directed teaching i see that and um and so for, and in terms of a technology point of view um 
does a school need to have a certain amount of instruments and technology to begin with, or does, is that provided as part of the package of what you offer? No, our package is, is, is very light, and we do offer some bundles uh, through, through third-party suppliers, but that starts to get us into, into traders <laughs> yes. um, and suppliers rather than something else, and that's not something that I've ever wanted PikaJump to be um, unduly uh, distracted by. No, we deliver the software and the license, and then um, what we would um, normally expect is, is that schools would use the computers that they have available to them, um, and um, often classrooms are, are full of, of little MIDI keyboards, of MIDI keyboards of some description, where they have a good starting point to be able to um, interact with our program uh, at the earlier stages. And many of our schools come on board on the basis of, right, we're going to uh, use the keyboard package. Then they go, right, this works, we like this. Um, the next easy thing to in implement in terms of size, uh, odd as this may seem, is these these small kind of Yamaha DD65 or the kind of um, replica type Chinese model makes like gear for music making people like that. Small tabletop drum kits with the little pedals that sort of replace the keyboard. Um, so they expand it through the through the keyboards uh, into the drums as well. Um, and then they just they tend to just build. They just tend to build their their practice around their experience. And um, so it sounds like a very um, sort of secondary school kind of setup in terms of the, I remember sort of from being at school, that kind of um, everyone sat around sort of with a keyboard doing some kind of thing. And I really love the fact that there's much more um, progress and assessment and understanding of what's going on there. But um, do you also have the experience of being in primary schools as well? Yes, thank you. I mean, it's a great question. I think the interesting thing about GigaJam is I would, I would argue the Giga Jam is appropriate from about the age of 10 on upwards. Um, now, I've seen Giga Jam being used with younger students, but of course that requires more intervention from the teacher. But um, the, we've got, say for instance, uh, in the Highland Council, uh, where we've been uh, working with those guys, or they've been working on their own, quite frankly, um, uh, they've been supplying Giga Jam to 84 of their primary schools for, for, for the last uh, 15 years. Um, and they use a music service teacher to go and support the local primary schools in, in delivery. So that's part of their package. And that's their kind of wider opportunities. Um, it's through the Youth Music Initiative that's, um, that's very successful in Scotland. Um, and as I say, that's been going a very long time. And that in itself demonstrates its, its success at, at primary level. And you know, we've got uh, schools in um, it's in, in London, so West Byfleet, um, Southwest London. That's that's a, a very long-standing um, primary customer. That's a junior school, um, and they use it in a very different way. So you've got classrooms which are used in curriculum time with the, with the classroom teachers. You've got the Highland Council model where that's kind of bust in, and it is literally bust in uh, because it's very, such a rural um, setting for them. They actually have two vans. One goes one way. Or I like to think of it, they drive out to the gates on a Monday morning. One van goes one in one direction, the, the van goes in the opposite direction. Now, that could be absolute nonsense, but that's how I like to see it in my, <laughs> in my very simple Mr. Ben world. Uh, and they go visit the schools and they have some equipment on, on their vans, as well as some equipment in the schools. So when the van drives away, they've still got some stuff to practice with. So that's a kind of, you know, once a week style, dropping and, and, and learn. 
um, secondary schools like Horbury Academy in Wakefield. Um, they use it religiously, uh, for want of a better word, um, in, in their classrooms. And West Byfleet, they use it as an after-school club. So, you know, the, the, we've also had settings, uh, Whitton Park Academy in Blackburn, for instance, have used it breakfast club, lunch club, after school, in class, from home, in all sorts of different settings. Um, so, yes, it, 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 it is, it, I think in an, you know, my, my main targeting is, is secondary schools, of course, um, but it can be used in a wide variety of settings, including colleges, adult education, and um, we've got the Institute of Technology in Tralee, uh, in, in the Republic of Ireland who use it as part of their teacher training, how to use technology in, in music. So uh, it can be used in a, in, in a very wide range of settings. Yeah, I think, I think I've really sort of, in my mind now, I can really see how, how the primary teachers could sort of bring that into their school. Because like you say, if you did it as an after-school club, you can literally just, depending on how many instruments that you have, you could just do it as a small club just to get those people involved. And then once you're au fait with how it's working and you get the kids really engaged, you can then expand through there. You know, your fundraising for whatever it happens to be through that year, you know, you can get more computers if you need more specific computers or more keyboards or more guitars or whatever that might be and yeah. i hadn't i hadn't quite realized the whole wider opportunities angle which is a fantastic idea because of course um that works exactly as you just described it you know if they're doing a samba project the music service or the trust or whoever's um part of the hub that's organizing it brings in a van load of instruments and leaves them for the 10 weeks and the same if they're a bunch of ukuleles or strings and that kind of thing all of which are available to hire so actually this is just exactly the same thing an, an extension of that except it would come in with keyboards um like say drum pads guitars whatever it was that they were going to be able to provide and also be able to give those lessons as well so you have that sort of specialist knowledge of the of what's going on at that point as well which is also fantastic i think for the teachers because certainly from the wider opportunities um samba things i've done it always works much better when the teacher's heavily involved because not only then are you delivering the music and they get the kids are getting the opportunity to perform but also the teachers are learning as well and then once the 10 weeks are finished all your wider opportunities have, have actually had the um have finished their course you're then still in a position to then carry on yourself in whichever form that you can. And that, that whole idea of being able to grow from just a starting point, I think, is a really key point. I think it is. And I, I think, you know, um, just making a couple of notes whilst you were speaking there, Mark, I mean, I think the interesting thing for me there is about sustainability. So we know that public money is scarce. We know that resources are tight. And we know that the, be the, you know, the best investment in our schools is the sort of 80% of a school budget that is invested into teachers. There's, you know, that, that, that's without a doubt. All of the proof indicates there that it's about the quality of teaching. So bringing the teachers on board, not trying to replace them with some you know, gizmo, fancy technology nonsense. You know, that, that's crazy. What it's about is actually providing a resource in the hands of a teacher that enables them to deliver more opportunities in, 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 in different ways. And I think the um, wider opportunities as was, I'm not entirely sure we're allowed to say that anymore. Right? <laughs> yeah. it's the first access. I yes, think exactly. Yes. I mean, that sort of first access is really interesting, isn't it? Because I think one of my fears in, 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 in the lots of project-based work that started to come out of the, the music manifesto, for instance, didn't provide the kind of legacy and progression, you know, sustained and supported progression that people like 
De Callum really, really wanted. You know, how do we build these sustainable models to enable a child to pick up a musical instrument and then continue their musical education for years? I mean, we've got this kind of strange tension in the National Plan for Music, uh, not wishing to get political here, but where they've reduced the requirement to 10 weeks. You know, every child should have 10 weeks at primary school. And we, we know it was hard enough to sustain uh, that musical progression when we were really looking for a year's worth of education. So you need to have something that is affordable and can be delivered, not this year, but also next year for another cohort of, of, of children, and that they can take those skills and build on them. And what I really love to see is that, yes, children do uh, are drawn to guitars, bass, keyboards and drums. There's no doubt about that. But when they get the music service teachers coming in, like we have in, in Luton. So in Luton, music service do a fantastic thing with a, a guy called Phil Knight, who's a guitarist. He goes into a school called uh, Sundon Park Junior School, Sundon Park Junior School. And he teaches, uh, I think it's, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's three years of, of students. So they get Giga Jam on whichever instrument they want, and they can vary that for three years. But what happens, and has happened time and time again in other schools, is when a student starts to feel encultured in, in music, in other words, they can, they can play something, they get that confidence to actually go, actually, I'd quite like to learn the trumpet, or I really like the idea of the trombone, or the violin, or whatever. And I, I remember in, in the early days of when we did a lot of work with Tiverton High School, that the big message that came back is, because children have had a chance to learn to play a musical instrument, this happened to be through Giga Jam, but you know that you know there are others, uh, delivery models, etc. That goes on. That child then actually felt musical as a result of it. And the surveys that built into the um, uh, music manifesto research that has backed up all of the progress that we've made in music education is very much about giving children that opportunity to experience music hands-on. And that hands-on for some people we know is about learning a musical instrument. For others, it'll be about going to see music being performed, etc. But for very many, in the classroom on a wet Tuesday afternoon, it's about doing something interesting and being active and being involved and being supported in that with their teacher, the person that they, you know, they have the, the most trusted relationship with. If music services are involved in that as well, then you've got this wonderful, cogent, musical workforce, uh, structure for, for a workforce, all coming together to support the pupils. So I, I, I have always seen it that way. Um, and, um, you know, as I said, we have those examples of, of, of those different models with music services coming in and, and supporting um, schools, as well as schools operating entirely on their own. Yeah, and, and what I would hope would happen with, with with this as the conversations going on and the knowledge that we're learning here is the fact that as a teacher um you do have access to money for music in your school and actually going to your music hub and saying look i've heard of giga jam and i've heard of this and you know we do some singing in school we've done some recorders maybe some ukulele we're looking to take it to the next level we don't necessarily have an orchestra yet we don't have any other instruments going on but we think we can encourage more people and do some whole class music and can you provide this and actually 
there, there, there should be a way of certainly opening that dialogue, I think, to see how, how you can go about that. Because like you say, that expansion and that working together, which is exactly why the music hubs were created, um, is, is what we're after. And, and, I, and I think actually, if you can't necessarily do it through that music hub, certainly opening that dialogue is a good place to start. And then even if you can get access to the money that you're entitled to as a school, you can then go about doing it on your own, which I think would be a really interesting thing as well, because there's obviously enough support and enough people around to be able to help you do that outside maybe of um of any of the music services that aren't willing to provide those things so um the other thing i'd like to i'd ask you about is um if you've got this course which is sort of within the classroom that the teachers are coordinating can you also can the children also do it on their own at home can they if they if it if one of the children really think i'm really loving this but i want to keep going i want to keep going but there's not enough time within the the class time that they have can can they expand that themselves individually Absolutely. And, and a key a key part of Giga Jam is very much about breaking down boundaries as much as we possibly can. So there was this, you know, all the buzzwords of the early 2000s was about, you know, cross-boundary education, etc., etc. Um, you know, the realities of that um, are, are, are quite varied, I think. Um, but the truth of the matter is that um, Giga Jam uh, students in schools where there's Giga Jam operating have access to Giga Jam anytime, anywhere, on, on any device, although it's best on a Windows machine, uh, it's you know it, they can they can GigaJam is delivered through a browser. So you know if they've got um, a mobile phone or, a, or a, a, a tablet of some description, they can still watch all the videos. They've got exercises that they can play along with. Um, they have a- access to all of that material anywhere on the bus, <laughs> uh, in their bedroom at home. And, and that's that's a big thing for us. That's really, really important. And that that kind of free at the point of access um, is, is a critical element. I remember uh, Leonora Davis talking about this, that you know, children should be able to have the opportunity to learn to play a musical instrument free at the point of access. Of course, somebody pays for it. But, you know, it, it's if we're going to actually equalize opportunity, and, and chance, then we need to make sure that people can have access to this. So yeah, at school and at home, and our license model is a very, very simple one for schools. If you buy a license, everybody can use it at school, at home. Fantastic. And so that takes us nicely into, you know, what what is, what is the license cost? How, how is there someone listening out there who thinks this is a great idea? I'd, I'd like to find out more about it. Um, yeah. What is the license cost and what, what sort of um, fee are the school looking to have to invest in it? Okay, so what, what we're doing increasingly now because of you know, budget constraints is we're actually t- just simply talking to schools about how much they can afford to pay. But based on, predicated, it's not just <laughs> how much can we squeeze out of it, it's the opposite. It's our, our business model is based on £1.50 per pupil per year at school and at home. Now, that's a relatively small unit cost, but actually some schools are very big. So that number can, can start to add up. So say for instance, in a, in a, uh, if we talk about a, 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 an average size secondary school, you're talking about a thousand pupils. So you might be saying, right, okay, there's a bill of a thousand pounds for everybody to have to be able to have a go. Well, that's absolutely fine. You know, a thousand to 1500, that's absolutely fine. But some schools, there's absolutely no way they could afford that because of the way their budgets are chopped up. And I understand that. So I would like a head of music to say, listen, actually, realistically, I want my year nines to do this 
because I want some of them to be converted to doing music next year. Or they may say, I want to support every child that comes in at year seven. Or I want all of Key Stage 3 to do it, for instance. So I've got secondary schools with licenses of £150. I've got secondary schools with licenses of £1,500. So it depends upon what that head of music wants to do, how they are funded themselves, do they have access to development bids and, and, and funding that enables them to go as big as possible? Or are they really reliant upon the budget that is, is, is as constrained by their photocopying costs as anything else? And I think, you know, heads of music would understand that. Um, so based on £1.50 per pupil, give me a call is, is what I would say. And what we also do is for music hubs, um, is we do licenses which says look, every school can have access to this. So you can actually provide that for every school. So part of what you do could be simply, if you can't reach every single child in your borough or city or county, what you can at least do is provide them with GigaJam, free at school, free at home, wherever they are. And we, we discount that to about 80% of the cost. Um, and that's based on the size of their of their grant. And again, it's based upon a sensible conversation about affordability. So the most important thing for people listening to remember is that they need to go to gigajam.com and um, and find your contact details and, and have a conversation. And, um, and, 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 and I think the model of kind of like you said, £1.50 a child is the fact that if you're really completely struggling and there is no money anywhere... Certainly speaking as a parent, you know, if it's something the school is really wanting to invest music as part of your child's education, even asking the parents to pay £1.50 is not the end of the world based on all the other things that we pay for various clubs, various trips and all that sort of thing. And while it's another cost, um, it's a cost which I think is well worth investing if you get to the point that you have no other alternative as well. And I think, but with the, like you said, with the options of music services and hubs being involved, the idea of actually being able to start small and grow and get every child involved, I, I think it's great value. And, and I think that it's definitely a conversation to have. And, um, and, I, and I hope many people do get in contact and, and just sort of open that dialogue with you. Well, I, I appreciate that. I mean, I think it's, I remember in the early days, I was criticised quite heavily for trying to be too worthy in what we're trying to do. But actually, the business has always been about trying to provide instrumental tuition to all of the 8 million pupils in, in, in our schools, free at the point of access. Um, it's not a crazy amount of money. It is sensible amount of money. But it also, you know, with the sort of disaggregation of, of our system in the UK, in, in the England in particular, it's all the more important that heads of music realise that there, there is something that is affordable to give their children a chance. So it, it's, it's meant to be priced affordably. We can afford to do that. I hope that schools can afford to invest in that. And, uh, and hopefully that gives more children a chance to, to start on that ladder to, to, uh, to some form of musical career within their school life and maybe on afterwards. 
That's fantastic. And Brian, thanks so much for chatting with us. I mean, I think we've got a really good understanding now about how it works and um, how to get in contact. And I think also how it can fit in a fabric of your um, musical life in a school as well. It's not a, it has to be like this, it has to be like that. I think it's part of a portfolio, as you said, of, of any kind of instrumental learning and any kind of music development. It really can sit with any of those things going on. And I, and I think that's a really important takeaway for anybody that's listening at home. So, uh, yeah, thanks very much for being on the show today not at all thanks mark you've been very kind thanks for listening to the education on fire podcast for more information of each episode and to get in touch go to educationonfire.com education is not the filling of a pail but the lighting of a fire